This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media. Mi nombre es Edgar Cruz. And I'm Kateri Zuni. Shortly after his election, President Trump released his contract with the American voter, a 100-day action plan with changes to immigration, healthcare, and environmental policy. Tonight, we bring you people from our community and our country who use education and organizing to remain engaged and resilient. First, we'll talk with Sheridan Danette Chile of the Red Nation to discuss the continued threat to the water of the Missouri River, the people of Sanding Rock Sioux Tribe, and all indigenous people. Our youth members, Yusuf Amr and Ludella Awad, will discuss the Muslim ban that was imposed over the weekend and what it means to our immigrant refugee families. We'll also hear from Dr. Bilal Sikou, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford. We'll be discussing using intersectionality for building community and resistance as a way to respond to the new administration. And later, we have a special community calendar filled with ways for you to get involved. Now, in the spirit of inspiration, here is Shining Star by Nika. Sheridan Danette Chedley is a student of Organization Communication and Sovereignty at the University of New Mexico. As a lead organizer of the Red Nation, Sheridan advocates on behalf of indigenous community and people across the country. Here is Alicia Hernandez with Sheridan to discuss the ongoing fight for indigenous liberation, along with the recent acts of resistance around Albuquerque led by the Red Nation. Thank you, Edgar and Catery. I'm Alicia Hernandez with Generation Justice, and I'm with Sheridan Denechili, a lead organizer with the Red Nation, a media organizer for the International Leonard Peltier Defense Committee, and an organizer in the Bernie Sanders Our Revolution. Welcome to Generation Justice, Sheridan. I'm so happy to have you here tonight. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, I want to start us off with my first question on how recently Trump has released an executive memo that would alter the way campaigns approach environmental re- regulations. And I really want to know, especially for you who has gone to Standing Rock, what does this mean for the No Dapple movement? Okay. And just to have everybody acknowledge um, out in the audience who are listening in tonight, on Tuesday, January 24th, um, the second election The second legislative day, Trump had signed an executive action to advance Keystone Pipeline and Standing Rock Pipeline. He signed this into action to expedite environmental reviews for high infrastructure projects. This permits process for domestic manufacturer to insist pipelines companies to buy materials from the U.S. company. Trump vows to cancel Obama's climate action plan and pulls out to pull out the Paris Climate Agreement. 
So this means that energy transfer partners can build uncompleted portions of the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Keystone Pipeline. And I know we were discussing before the interview how a lot of the organizing you did was surrounded around the No Dapple movement. I'd like to take a second just to really, really share how how that impacted you and your community, because it was a lot of resistance that went into that for just um, one signing to say that it doesn't, it really doesn't, wasn't in consideration. Okay. So bringing that into topic, um, Trump didn't consult with tribal governors nor tribal leaders. Uh, we have sovereignty rights, and he went ahead and signed those memos without consult consultation. So that you know just justifies that again. Like as Native Americans, we are being seen as inhuman, as if we don't have rights when we have been and always have been the first indigenous people of this nation. And again, we are being ignored. So with that, you know, the younger generation and is stepping up to say that enough is enough. Absolutely. You um, completely covered my next question as why how how insignificantly um, our president-elect might have treated this executive memo. So my next question to you would be, will you please explain what tribal sovereignty is and the role it serves in protecting indigenous rights? Tribal sovereignty is the right to govern ourselves. It is defined um, our membership and it defines how we can manage tribal property, how we can regulate tribal business, and how we can create relationship domestically within this nation. It recognizes the existence of federal government to tribal government relationships. Absolutely. Now, um, for a moment, I, I would like to highlight how how or how how hands-on you are with organizing in our community. And we were discussing how that is a big, important role with you and how your everyday your everyday beliefs in your everyday life. Will you please share with us why that's so important to you to organize and to put together these actions and these movements? Um, as being Native American, I truly hold it to my heart, and I'm very passionate about organizing and leading Native Americans and our allies and my friends and encouraging everybody that we all have to step up individually. We cannot rely on our tribal governments. We cannot rely on our tribal leaders, nor our New Mexico legislative, because they can only do so much and know so much. So it has to be taken upon ourselves to take that initiative to create services and create education spaces, create conversation in public and class, you know, class settings and one-on-ones so that we can, you know, benefit our community and um, just, you know, continually um, 
again, like encouraging the youth, especially the youth, you know, the um, the youth are our future and we are doing this for them. And the reason why we as Native Americans are stewards of this land is because we look forward to our next seventh generation. And you had shared that a big way is to provide those spaces to educate and those spaces to really take action. What specifically can we do as a community to get involved? You can go ahead and organize. You know, that's the one thing that um, individuals can take on hand is organize, organize, um, again, like services for homeless, for homeless drive, um, that's what Red Nation has done, you know, previously since it was formed. And in February, um, that's what we're going to be doing in Gallup as well as um, we have been doing a homeless drive so that we can um, feed the homeless out in Gallup, New Mexico. And uh, not only in Gallup, you know, we want to expand around border town within the New Mexico region and take care of, you know, like our own, you know, as, um, as natives. Because, again, you know, we, we are continually being or ignored or we're, de- you know, depicted as stereotype drunk natives. So as for the Red Nation, we get that positive um, outcome and that positive look to let society know that we are educated Native Americans. You know, we do um, we do this on a volunteer basis because you know we do care for our relatives and we create you know again services and education workshops. We have study groups so that we can learn beyond what is not taught in the Western society or in educational institutions. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you feel that is very important to give out right now um, in regards to this executive memo that has just recently been signed? Again, um, it goes back to, you know, educating and bringing awareness. I would like, you know, to speak to the youth upon this, um, just to become very educated in our treaties, become educated in our state laws, in our bylaws, and in our resolutions to know your rights because, you know, our, our rights are being taken away from us every day. And now with the newly elected president, it has to be up to us to start that revolution. And a revolution um, is not stereotype as being negative there's positivity and you know and what a revolution can bring amongst the community and for example you know like um me going out to standing rock i was here in albuquerque and um had volunteerly built a, a yurt with Another ally of mine, um, her name is Beth Lovemore and Lynette Houses as well. You know, like she's a really good friend of mine. And so we're really big advocates and activists. So 
we had um, created this yurt within our own community in Albuquerque. And when we went to Standing Rock, we had donated the yurt to the Pueblo camp. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It, it really does bring hope into my heart to see how actively involved you are in our community and how actively you are within to, to bring resistance towards this. Thank you so much for coming in tonight with us. Um, Sherdell and I appreciate your time and I appreciate all the dedication you put into our community. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. This has been Alicia Hernandez for Generation Justice. Thank you, Alicia and Sheridan. Thank you so much for the work you do here at UNM and all the organizing you do toward liberation. We're super thankful to have you here tonight. Yeah, thank you, Sheridan, for joining us. And as an Indigenous woman, I want to just say that I really appreciate the work that you do and that you stand up for Indigenous people, our ancestors, and the next generations to come. And in honor of the No Dapple movement and water protectors everywhere, this next song is called Stand Up, Stand in Rock by Taboo. The salmon will run, the mountain will breathe, the rivers will flow. The rainbow is here and prophecy tells us all generations will hear. This weekend, President Trump and his administration imposed a ban on immigrants and refugees arriving from seven of the world's most populated Muslim countries, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, six of which have been bombed by the U.S., not including Iran, which has shared a contentious relationship with our country. Interestingly, according to an article published by Bloomberg, neighboring Middle Eastern countries with business ties to President Trump like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, are exempt from this ban. Lawyers working with the ACLU have managed to place a temporary hold on the order, which allowed many who were detained to continue on to their destinations. We would like to take a moment to speak with two of our youth members who have direct and personal ties to the refugee experience, Yusuf Amr and Ludella Awad. We are joined by Generation Justice Director Roberta Rael to speak with them now. Thank you, Kateri. And Ludella and Yusuf, it's really, really a pleasure for me to be here with you this evening. And before we even get started, I want to say thank you. Would you please just have our listeners know a little bit more about you? So if you would tell us just a little bit more about who you are. Ludella, would you start, please? Hi, my name is Ludella Awad, and I'm 17 years old, and I'm a DJ fellow. And my parents were born in Syria, but I'm, I was born and raised here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thank you. My name is Yusuf Amr. Um, I am 14 years old. I have been with Generation Justice for two years. And you go to school somewhere. I do. <laughs> I go to Cleveland Middle School. Okay. Thank you. Yusuf, um, tell me a little bit more about your personal experience Um how did you get here from Iraq? Why did you come from Iraq? Tell me that story. Um, when I was five, uh, we were granted refugee status because in, uh, in Iraq, we were in the middle of the war zone and we were prosecuted for our religion. 
and there were a lot of kidnappings and killings. And the people who kidnapped you usually didn't care if you lived or not. What part of Iraq were you in? Baghdad. Okay, so when you say you were in the middle of the war zone, you were in the middle of the war zone. Yes. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Youssef, when, just a little more about your story. When you left Iraq, did you come right to the United States, or did, you, did your family have to go to other places first? Um, we went to Syria for about a year, and um, we were very lucky because other families who were waiting to um, get accepted by uh, another country, they stayed longer, two, three, four years, maybe even longer. Mm-hmm. So we were very lucky that we stayed. We got to stay one year. Thank you. Lutella, what is your experience with, um, I know that you were born in this country, but your parents are, uh, were born in Syria, and you still have family in Syria? Yeah, I do. Um, my relative, one of my relatives was granted political asylum, and it was given under an extreme circumstance. And the process for asylum was an extensive time. And my re- my relative has been in the United States for 18 months since July t- 2015, and they came from Syria, Damascus. Okay. And just... Um for those of us who are still learning about what all of this means. So political asylum is um, a little bit of a different category that is granted for someone. Political asylum typically means that there was some political uh, persecution that the person was um, needing protection from, and that is why they were allowed to uh, get their visa or their green card to come to this country. Whereas um, in Yusuf's case, he his family was granted um, uh, being able to come to the United States uh, from a ref- refugee status. And they're very similar, and sometimes they overlap. Um, so Yusuf, I know earlier we talked a little bit about when you first came, you were so young, you were only five but can you talk a little bit about the adjustment to coming to the United States? And based on that, based on your family's experience, what is it that refugees need when they are relocated? Um, um, it was really difficult to adapt because the culture is so different and it's a new language. Um, it was really hard going to school because um, I really didn't understand a word uh, what the teacher was saying. And... Um, I'm really thankful for my mom because she spoke English, and without her, um, I don't know what it would it would have been much harder for us. She got us, she got us where we needed to be. Um, what refugees need these days is better refugee programs because they they are put into a whole new world without getting the help that they need. Hmm. Thank you, Ludella. Along those same lines, um, your relative now has moved to the United States. And can you talk a little bit, I know it's not your personal experience, but can you just talk a little bit about what you observe um, your relatives going through? One of my relatives in Syria had his house bombed um, mm-hmm. during the war and government corruption. 
And then what about the relatives that are here with the political asylum? Can you just tell us a little more about what's their experience like? What have you observed that they go through trying to adapt to the United States? So their experience um, trying to adapt is much different than their home country. And they're usually, it takes a long process to get the asylum, but it's a little bit more safer than over there. And they have, they're getting more rights and everything. Thank you. Yusuf, Friday evening or Saturday, when you heard about this ban and Iraq was one of the countries that was included in it, can you just share with us a little bit about how did how did it make you feel? Um, it made me feel terrible because I, I feel like America is not taking responsibility for its actions of bombing six out of seven out of the countries. And they should accept refugees because it's, um, they made the refugees. Thank you. So... What I'm hearing you say is that six of those seven banned countries at some point in time have been bombed by the United States government. Yes. And that creates the situations that the unstable situations that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, Ludella, what about you? When you heard about this, as you started understanding what was happening and Syria and Syria has been in the news so much this last couple of years, so much tragedy happening right now there. How, how did it make you feel? It made me feel that it doesn't seem fair that their rights are being taken away and even from from us and from everyone and we're being judged. When you say we, who do you mean? I mean that we're, I mean that me and other people are being, having the rights taken away from each one of us and it doesn't seem like it's fair to us and me, including me and my culture. Okay. So when you say my culture, you're talking about being Muslim? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Talk. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, so we, we have a few more minutes together, but I'm, I'm curious, do you have a message to the executive office of the government in the United States? If you, if you had the opportunity to sit down with either the executive office or any of the legislators, uh, or excuse me, congressional delegation, what would you want to say to them about what's happening right now? Um, I would say don't don't ban them, don't ban the countries because some some people really do need the help. Yeah, I would say the same thing is just they really they really need help and they're at the the stages that they really need people to help them. And if you were able to give a message to other young people who are in refugee status, other young people either trying to come to this country or trying to solidify their paperwork. Do you have a message to give to those young people? Um, Or is there a message that you think that all of us should be giving to those young people? I would say to those young people is to try to stay positive. I know there's a lot of tragedy going on, but I would say just be positive and keep your head high and and um, I would say to keep trying. It's uh, some things uh, are hard, but without trying, you you might not might never know. So don't give up. Don't give up either. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, again, I'm just so grateful to the two of you who are willing to share a little bit of your personal stories with us, and helping us understand that. Um, there are refugees amongst us 
who are successful and beautiful and powerful, and they actually make our country so much better than what it is. And so I want to thank you for stepping up this evening and being willing to share with us. Um, for everyone else, um, if you haven't checked out the hashtag, no ban, no wall, I um, want you to check that out so you can see a little bit more what's going on all around the country. It's um, both a tragic moment in our country, but it's also a really empower empowering moment in our country um, with everyone standing together for No Ban, No Wall. And um, thank you to the ACLU for the work that you've been doing on behalf of, of the refugees. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roberta. And Yousef and Ludella, thank you both so much for sharing those insightful stories. We're super thankful to have you both in our community and here with us tonight. I know it's incredibly difficult to put these experiences into words, but you both did an amazing job. So thank you. Yes, thank you, Yusuf and Ludella. Um, it's really an honor to know both of you and to have learned your stories and your family's stories. And I'm so proud of you for being honest and brave tonight and sharing that. Now, here is Freedom by Lauren Hill. Everybody knows that they're guilty. Everybody knows that they've lied. Everybody knows that they're guilty. Resting on their conscience, eating their inside. It's freedom. Said it's freedom time now. It's freedom. Said it's freedom time now. Dr. Bilal Siku is an associate professor of political science at Hillier College at the University of Hartford. He's also a blogger and activist for social and racial justice. GJ fellow Christina Rodriguez had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Siku at the Facing Race Convening from Everyday Democracy. Let's hear what they had to say. This is Christina Rodriguez with Generation Justice, and I'm at the Everyday Democracy National Convening. I'm here with Bilal Siku, an associate professor at the University of Hartford. He teaches poli-sci, and tell us some more about yourself. Right. So I've been at the uh, University of Hartford probably since 2002 or 2001. So I teach in the broad field of American politics, but I do courses on race and politics, urban politics, also campaign elections and voting behavior. And how'd you get started at the university? Well, obviously I need a job as an academic. I moved to Connecticut about 20 years. I was at the University of Connecticut for a few years, spent some time doing work with nonprofits, working on social justice kinds of issues. And then I realized that teaching was actually my calling. And so I applied for a job at the University of Hartford and it's just been a wonderful experience since then. What made you come to the Everyday Democracy Convening? I've known a lot of the people who are involved with Everyday Democracy. Our paths have crossed quite a bit. I kind of think of myself as a scholar and an activist, and so I do a lot of stuff outside of the university involved in social justice and racial justice sort of activities. And so naturally, I've come across you know Everyday Democracy and the good work that they do. And so I was invited to come to the conference and participate on one of the plenaries. And that was the plenary about the intersections of democracy, equity, and voice. Can you tell me some of the things that you heard in that plenary, some things that you might have learned? Yeah, I thought that was a very good kickoff to this conference. I mean, the idea was to really talk about how the criminal justice system, education, the healthcare issues intersect 
around issues of race and equity in our society. I think, you know, the panel was really good. I learned a lot from the panelists about some of the issues that they, you know, really work very hard on as an academic. I'm not out in the field the way they are and really dealing with people on a day-to-day basis. So a lot of my knowledge comes through research, but also through the experience of working with people who do that kind of work. And so one of the things I took away from that conversation was just how well we were able to weave together these issues to show that they do, in fact, intersect and that to talk about the criminal justice system, you need to also talk about the mental health crisis that we have in our society. We need to talk about how the education system plays into that. You know, people talk quite a bit about the school to prison pipeline that exists in our society. You know, the police are often on the front line when it comes to dealing with people who have mental illness crisis, and they're poorly trained and equipped to deal with that, and it often can end in, you know, something really tragic. And so to have a conversation where all of these issues intersect, I think, is just really important for framing these issues and getting us to really think about how we can really go about trying to do something about them. I do think the frameworks of like race and mental health are usually left out in a lot of conversations and usually in academia, I would say. How, especially, I mean, talking about campaign elections and you're a poli-sci professor, what has this last semester been like for you? I mean, this has been a very tough semester for for me personally, but certainly for a lot of my students. I, you know, I have the fortune of teaching courses in which a large number of our students are students of color. My university, probably across the university, is probably about 35% of the university are students of color. And so this election was a really tough election for many of them. Many other white students, particularly those who feel vulnerable, some of my LGBTQ students, you know, really talked about the fear that they have. Many of my students of color talked about those fears as well. We have students who are Latino, for example. Some of them have relatives who are undocumented. Some of them themselves may be undocumented. And so this is a very challenging moment for a lot of them. One of the things I've been excited about, though, was that a lot of those students talked a lot about this was a wake-up call, and now they feel like they need to become engaged. They need to really get out there and work. I've taught, you know, courses at the university over the years that really focuses on how to engage young people and so it really felt good to me personally to hear them really talk about that this is a moment that they recognize they need to get out there they need to be a part of the protest they need to be a part of you know reacting to and responding to the challenges that this new administration presents. I'm actually feeling good about what's going on right now because I'm hearing things from people that I hadn't heard in the past and that's a really good thing and you know as I always try to tell my students you know it's not about trying to save the world because that's a big job that's too big a job to really try to take on but you can definitely do things to change the world and so even the small things can help sort of make those kind of changes to create the kind of world that you want to be in. This election in many ways was a clash of two different visions of America. One vision is multiracial, it's diverse, it's full of people who have different sexual orientations, it's full of people with different religious views and religious values. And then there's another vision of America that wants to take us back 50, 60 years. And in many ways, this election was about that clash. And so what I say to young people today is, fight for that vision that you want. And that vision is not one that existed 50 or 60 years ago. It's the vision of society that you're living right now today. And what would your message be to young people? Like, how do they how do they fight for what they want in this political system? Young people, you guys have a lot of interest in a lot of issues that you care about, whether it's the climate. In fact, you are the most tolerant generation of any generation of Americans has ever lived. 
you care about the environment, you care about racial justice, you care about social equity and social justice kinds of issues. The question is, how do you find a way in which you can become involved in fighting for the things you care about that fall under those issues? And as I said before, the important thing is not to sort of see yourself as someone who's coming to save the world and you have to, you know, be this great sort of leader like we had in the past. But, you know, if you find yourself tutoring even under, you know, privileged kids or you find yourself, you know, helping helping to start some organization that, you know, just engages in dialogue and discussion about these critical kinds of issues. If you find yourself doing work that is socially meaningful, that really helps to deal with problems that we face as a country, then you're making a contribution. So it's not about being the next great civil rights leader. It's about being someone who is making a contribution, a contribution that is helping to create the kind of world, the kind of society that you want to live in. I'm curious, like what the education system means to you like at some point in your life you decided you wanted to be part of that like what was that I feel most accomplished when I'm working with young people when I see the light bulb come on that they get certain kinds of issues they have a deeper understanding of the issues that they may have come in with one understanding and then they come out of the class and they say I really learned a lot you opened my eyes up to things I hadn't thought about and so for me that's where I feel more accomplished and so working with young people and I taught two classes this semester, one on campaign elections and voting behavior. The other one was a class that was an honors course called Generation on the Rise, which was about millennials and political activism. So it was a sort of perfect storm in some ways for me. Bad election outcome in terms of who got elected, but at the same time, it felt really good to hear young people who were taking these classes, who were watching these elections much more closely than they would have done under other circumstances, who were organizing their fellow class classmates to come out to the first and the third debate. My students put on issue forums where they talked about sexual assault on campuses and talked about the student loan debt crisis. And so for me, that's much more rewarding than perhaps being out there as an activist or an organizer. In what ways was this eye-opening? Like, was it was it surprising for the class? Was was there some type of preparation? Did you have your eye on this possibility? What was that like? As I said, you know, the students were really paying very close attention to what was going on. It was a part, obviously, a part of the class assignments, but also they paid close attention because this was just an extraordinary election. I think, you know, going through that process, what a lot of the students came out with was understanding just how toxic this election actually was. You know, many students the day after the election were actually in tears talking about their fears and worries about a presidential candidate who walks like a fascist, talks like a fascist, and and in my opinion, is a fascist. You know, someone who is misogynistic, who is homophobic, who is racist, and said a lot of things that confirmed that kind of a characterization of him. And so the students heard that and they pay very close attention to it. And that scared a lot of them. And so this election in many ways is a lot different than any I've experienced. I mean, I've been following presidential elections closely probably since 1980, and I've never seen anything like this. I've never had students after a class, and I've been teaching for 20 years, I've never had a class where after the election, students were in tears and talking about how afraid they were. So this election was different. And 
you know, as we look at the president begin to put together his administration, you know, that swamp he promised to drain looks a lot like the normal swamp that gets created by conservative politicians and people who are hell-bent on creating the kind of oligarch society that we currently live in. And so in many ways, he is doing exactly what we expected of him, those of us who opposed him. And at the same time, it's also this realization that he's putting people in place who deny, you know, climate change and putting in place people who want to sell off public land to people who want to drill for oil and frack. And so this is a very dangerous moment, I think, for our country and a very dangerous moment for the world in general. And I know this is a huge question, but like, what what do we do next? Like, what, what are our next steps? You know, I think, you know, this isn't a moment where we despair. I think this is a moment where we organize and we take action to educate yourself about the issues. You have to really understand, you know, what's going on and have a vision of the kind of society that you want to live in. You know, so if you are thinking to yourself in 10 years, what kind of country do I want to live in? You know, have some concrete ideas about what that looks like and then set about the task of trying to create that world. There are lots of groups out there that you can become involved with, lots of organizations that are working on social change, working on racial justice, working on economic equity. Then you need to get involved with those groups. You need to have conversations with people to talk about these issues, to help try to bring some of your friends along. But most importantly, get yourself to that place where you really understand what's going on. You have a clear sense of the kind of world you want to create, and you have a clear sense of the things that you can do to create that kind of world. And so don't overwhelm yourself with the thought that, as I said again, that you have to be this super organizer, this super sort of activist, but you can make small contributions that when they add up with others doing that, it really can make a difference. Thank you so much, Bilal. This is Christina Rodriguez with Generation Justice. Thank you, Christina and Dr. Siku. We appreciate your work and your passion. And now, Alicia Hernandez and my co-host, Edgar, will take you through this week's community events. Thank you, Katerie. It's time for another community calendar. I'm Alicia Hernandez. Tonight, we've heard from people who have found ways to resist oppression and empower the community. So we've put together a few more ways to get involved. Let's get started. What's up first, Alicia? Well, we have a meeting hosted by the Tiny Home Village Project, a community project that is planning towards providing safe, efficient, and dignified houses for Albuquerque's homeless. This project will reintegrate our city's homeless population back into the economy, taking the first step towards securing safe housing. They're planning to meet Thursday afternoon, February 2nd, from 5.30 to 7 p.m. at the McKinley Community Center. For more information, email isebiel at icloud.com. This next event is all about standing up for immigration justice. It's called the Borderlands Benefit from the one from 516 Arts and the New Mexico Immigrant Law Center to support immigrant families in New Mexico. The event will give folks a time to come together in this politically divided time and show support for justice across racial, political, and economic lines. It's at 516 Arts on Thursday, February 16th from 6 to 8 p.m. at 516 Central Avenue. For more information, email teresa at 516arts.org. Our last announcement of the night is a plan of action for contacting our Congress, including our congressional delegation and our other members of Congress who have decision-making power. 
That's right, Edgard. One of the best ways that everyday people like you and myself can make our voices heard is to simply call our congressional leaders in Washington, D.C. Here are some helpful tips. First, do not limit our engagement to online petitions. Emails and mailed letters are usually not as effective because the time you spent on writing them end up wasted. A better practice is to take advantage of any face-to-face time with with your congressional representatives. If you can't make face-to-face time with your congressional delegates, the next best action is to be heard, is to call and call often. This means calling each of your senators and delegates at the D.C. office, then calling your local officials. This is because your congressional delegation gets reports on the three most called-about topics daily. When you call, it helps to state your issues clearly and to give your zip code. You can ask to speak to the staffer in charge of a specific issue, and if they're not available, talk to any other staffer. Getting names definitely helps. You can leave messages, but calling back helps you get your opinion counted. Adding your personal experience with an issue can help get your voice heard, and so can limiting your calls to only specific each issues each day. You can also express your opinions by about your legislative actions who... You, your representatives have already taken, so they know what you approve or disapprove on how they vote. You may feel like staffers are getting tired of you, but their job is to listen, so don't be discouraged. A democracy can only function when all of us are engaged. We hope these tips help you get your voice heard. Well, that's it for our community calendar. Now, let's make time for a song. Here's Uprising by Muse. Transmissions will resume I'll try to push, try to keep us all down We've come to the end of another great show. We'd like to give a special thanks to tonight's guests, Sheridan Danette-Chili, Dr. Bilal Siku, Ludella Awad, Yusuf Amr. Thank you for sharing with us. And a big thank you to our co-host, Alicia Hernandez. Editing assistance came from Cristina Rodriguez. Production assistance for tonight's program came from Roberta Rael and Kamaria Umi. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, and watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Guanalma Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. And shout out to everyone who showed up and stood out and organized uh, tonight at the Albuquerque Sunport against the Muslim band. I'm Edgar Cruz. And I'm Katerie Zuni. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Tienes un nuevo amor Sin embargo Te deseo Lo mejor Si en mí No encontraste Felicidad
in a little tent Oh, and just lie 